This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Dinosaurs. That's a Godzilla. Godzilla is not a dinosaur. I invited a dinosaur Godzilla, to the podcast. Uh, Godzilla noises are not dinosaur noises. You don't know that that's not what it sounded like. I have not seen the movie Jurassic Park in a long time. Okay. I read the book in junior high school also. Hmm. But that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And if you can't tell, we're going to be talking about Jurassic Park this week by Michael Crichton. Rhymes with Frighten, as the internet likes to tell you. (laughs) Yes. It says on Wikipedia for some reason. I've run into a couple weird Wikipedia articles lately that have had... Sections that don't feel normal. Oh, I love those. Like I was like the Crichton rhymes with Frighten thing was one. I was reading about. I was reading about bubble tea, <laughs> and it has, it has like cooking directions for the little like tapioca balls that are in the bottom of it. Like someone just dropped a recipe in here. Like no yeah, one would notice. Just like how you're supposed to do it. It's not a full recipe. It's just like very simple baking instructions or cooking instructions. Interesting. I thought. Yeah, we t- we've talked about the Waluigi principle on air before, that mm-hmm. the quality of the subject matter dictates the quality of the Wikipedia <laughs> article. <laughs> but I, I'm with you the that Waluigi like there... The Waluigi principle, there, that's a good name for it. There is a thing where you can tell it's shifted from like encyclopedia language to really intense fandom language, or like when wikipedia articles about fictional characters like sound way too real like you're not even in a show specific wiki you're in the main you're wiki. on the main real world wikipedia I, I, the ones where the wikipedia editors have just given up and they post that thing at the top that are like oh this this is obviously written from a fan's point of view whatever nothing for, we can do about it for just two dollars a month you could help us rid the world of terrible wikipedia pages like this but since you're selfish it's here here what it is if- the encyclopedia britannica had had all the stuff that wikipedia has in it so what if you could order the encyclopedia britannica to your door and you open it up and there's just a description of every episode of seinfeld in there (laughs) well the what i like about that is the idea that there would be encyclopedia britannica salespeople, like door-to-door encyclopedia salespeople, like there used to be isn't yeah that's how they did it right yeah because we had a whole set in our house. We had like two shelves dedicated to Britannicas. There were no TV episodes in any of them. That's really unfortunate. Yeah, I think I wrote some essays about birds based on those books. <laughs> but that's about all I got out of it. So what did you... This is a podcast about books. <laughs> each Obviously. Week, clearly. Each week, one of us uh, has read a book that they haven't read before. Um, and then we talk about it on air. And the other person sometimes asks questions or makes goofs. 
or just um, like sits and looks up stuff on the internet and doesn't really pay attention. That has happened in the past. We're going to try and limit it this week. <laughs> it's very tempting depending on how we're doing. Yeah. Um, uh, so as you may have inferred from the stuff that I was saying, Greg, the- <laughs> this week read Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. You may have also inferred it from what I said earlier that we're talking about Michael Crichton and his book Jurassic Park. You may also have inferred it from that. This book was recommended to us by one of our illustrious Patreon donors, Russell. So I want to thank Russell for suggesting Thanks, Russ. this book. I'm a big dinosaur fan. You're a big Jurassic Park fan, specifically. Yeah, but also dinosaurs. I was a fan of dinos before Jurassic Park was a thing. I think most little boys between the ages of like four to six... Like dinosaurs. They all like dinosaurs, but Craig got stuck developmentally in that part of his life, and so he still has that same wonder... And appreciation for dinosaurs. And if you know him and your friends on it with him on Facebook, every time there's a dinosaur link, you just send it to him. And That's... he's like, thanks, guys. I've seen it 30 <laughs> times already, but thanks. Uh-huh. It's true. That's how I live my life. I went and saw uh, the arena show Walking with Dinosaurs a couple years ago. I was the oldest boy there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was like 25. Mm-hmm. And it was like some arena show where they had like two story tall dinosaur puppets that were like driving around on go karts. It was cool. Yeah. It was pretty neat. They went was through it the cool, whole... you grown up adult man. Yeah. Well, see, you know all those videos where people like wear those dinosaur wear those like raptor suits and do parkour or like scare people in garages or whatever? Sure. Like those they were using those suits in this stage show like four years ago. So just saying. I don't know what you're trying. Me to... neither. <laughs> but I'll, I'll... if this is an excuse for your behavior, then I'm not quite sure that it's working. No, it's not working. But I will say that as much as I love dinosaurs, I think I knew more about dinosaurs when I was eight, like actually knew about them, than I do now. So you haven't you haven't kept it up. It's like a foreign language where if you don't lose it, then you if you don't use it, you lose it. Man, I've got like aphasia or something today. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll just be careful. I'm going to mispronounce dinosaur names. I'm not going to know all the facts that I used to know. Like, know that my enthusiasm does not come with actual expertise. I think that's really <laughs> what I wanted to say. That really, I mean, it puts you in a in a position to be writing articles about dinosaurs on Wikipedia. Yeah, So that's we can true. bring it back that's true. full circle. Andrew, you, you said you had read this book before. Have you read any other Crichton? I haven't. I don't think I have, actually. Um, I've seen other Michael Crichton adaptations, and there are tons and tons and tons of those. Uh-huh, like Congo? Um, yeah, like Congo is one. I found there's a list of, like, 11 of them uh-huh. that's on I- IMDb. Okay, hit me. Um, so there's Sphere, which yeah. is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, there is what? There's Westworld, which I'm not quite sure what that is. I think it's another broken theme park story uh the 13th warrior mm-hmm. um the Andom- the andromeda strain was a movie in 1971 and a miniseries in 2008 yep based um, on a book yep the great train robbery which mm-hmm. <laughs> sounds i don't know any cool. yeah i don't know anything about that book um the lost world jurassic park now that's the sequel to jurassic park and Correct. like do you know how much that has to do with the book <sighs> With the book, The Lost World? Yeah. I have no idea. Okay, I imagine it's a, it is also about an additional 
island, mm-hmm. which this book certainly leaves room for. Sure. Um, there's Rising Sun, The Terminal Man, Timeline. Did you know that Michael Crichton wrote the movie Twister? I did not know that. Which is celebrating its like 20th anniversary. Oh man, that's really that's good. They go, they they drive through a house in that movie. They drive through a house that is rolling on the street because of a twister. Yeah, don't get it twisted. <sighs> they never say that. They, they should say we should like they should have a special edition like George Lucas director's cut where <laughs> people are saying like don't get it twisted all the time. Like with they should go back to old movies and add modern slang. Is what I'm saying. Okay. This is how I originally envisioned it, but the slang hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) And our slang at the time was not advanced enough to capture the feelings that I wanted to. Frankly, my dear, that dress is on fleek. That's how how Casablanca ends. Yep, that's how you do it. I don't know the... (laughs) I don't know that that's Casablanca in the first place. Doesn't matter. All right. So what else should we know about Michael Crichton? I know that he's done a whole bunch of stuff. In his own words, he recently, he passed away a couple years ago. 2008. Um, 2008. His website kind of sums up his biography uh, like this. When I was 15, I wanted to go to college and be a writer. When I was 20, I was in college and applying to medical school to become a doctor. When I was 25, I was in medical school, but I was going to quit when it was finished. When I was 30, I was a successful film director with my first film, Westworld, in release. When I was 35, I'd almost decided I didn't want to direct anymore, but I wasn't sure what to do next. So I started a software company and did computer games. When I was 40, I really wanted to only direct movies and never write again. When I was 45, I had my first child and I was happily writing and not interested in directing. I feel like my life has been very exciting and very unpredictable. Michael Crichton is a man who... (laughs) is very self-assured which okay. i there there's that uh there's that internet adage that says like god give me the confidence of a mediocre white man i'm not <laughs> saying that michael crichton was mediocre but i'm saying his every move does seem to be very confident like here's here's an anecdote here's okay. a fun anecdote Hit me um during his undergraduate study in literature he conducted an experiment to expose a professor who he believed was giving him abnormally low marks and criticizing his literary style uh-huh. informing another professor of his suspicions Crichton submitted an essay by George Orwell under his own name the paper was returned by his unwitting professor with a mark of B minus Cool so like like this is a this is a college student who thinks when he's getting like bad grades from a professor it's definitely definitely the professor yeah, always. Who has it out for me and not because my work could be improved at all. Yeah. And I also like that you submit a George Orwell essay. Like, surely this is A-plus work because it's by a published author. Like, that's not how that works. Yeah, without any more information on, like, this is the best essay that Orwell ever wrote, is it even, like, relevant to the course? I don't know. Like, maybe he just maybe he just copied and pasted, like, a couple chapters out of the middle of Animal Farm and handed that in. <laughs> Uh, so we, he was, uh, born in Chicago. He spent some time in Boston. He was living in California later in his life. He was born in 1942, as you said, died in 2008, um, Harvard grad, etc. I think got an MD, but never actually got a license to practice medicine. Yeah. Good money. Well spent, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think it's really just like it was all research for the Andromeda Strain, basically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a lot of his books have this. Uh, the the term techno thriller has been tossed around, which seems a little loaded, but I'll buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be a thriller about techno music, but it's it's not. not. Nothing's thrilling about techno music. Um, the uh, it's these like near future or science fiction novels that are like written to feel as if they're happening. They're all supposed to have medical. Under, they just you know. they have one foot in reality, and that yes. makes them more, um, I don't know what, more believable. Yeah, the part in Congo where all those monkeys shoot laser guns is, like, maybe not the most believable thing. Yeah, well, that was from the movie, and Wikipedia points out that that movie was only loosely adapted <laughs> from the Michael Crichton book. So maybe there weren't, maybe there weren't gorillas shooting guns <clears throat> In the book itself. I don't know. But um, yeah, there's the New York Times. I don't know if it was his obituary. It's labeled as it's just builder of wind up realms that thrillingly run amok is the headline, which like not a great headline. (laughs) Charles McGrath of the New York Times. Um, But he's he writes uh, all of the Crichton books depend to a certain extent on a little frisson of fear and suspense. That's what kept you turning the pages. But a deeper source of their appeal was the author's extravagant care in working out the clockwork mechanics of experiments, the DNA replication in Jurassic Park, the time travel in Timeline, the submarine technology in Sphere. The novels have embedded in them little lectures or mini seminars on, say, the Bernoulli principle, voice recognition software or medieval jousting etiquette. Um, the best of the Crichton novels have about them a boy's adventure quality. So, like, it's, yeah, like like you said, there's this little, like, info dump that gives you some some information that's either real or close to real or trying to pass itself off as real. And then the book uses that information to, like, drive the suspense or to drive your knowledge of what's going on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you would say that's true of Jurassic Park. Certainly. Uh, I would also say that there are at least two stories that came out before Jurassic Park that bear some uh, some similarities. There's a series of comics from the Judge Dredd, you know, the same series of comics where Judge Dredd came out of called 2000 AD that okay. feature like a dinosaur amusement park. Uh, there's a book called Carnosaur that came out in 84. Sounds sexy. Uh not carnal sore. <laughs> carnal sores don't sound sexy at all. But carnosaur oh, yeah, no, you... uh, is, you know, a dinosaurs go amuck in the modern day. And they actually, they didn't do an, a re-release of the book initially um, because it, ca- it would have been after Jurassic Park and everyone would have thought he had plagiarized it, even though his book came first, which I think okay. is pretty funny. Uh I bring that up because Crichton has had some uh, people levy plagiarism concerns at him. Uh, Apparently, Stephen Kessler claimed that the movie Twister was based on his work, Catch the Wind. The jury took only 45 minutes to rule in favor of Crichton, and Crichton refused to shake the man's hand. Jeez. In 2006, Crichton, at a National Press Club meeting, Crichton summarized his intellectual property legal problems by stating, I always win. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, guys. Uh, Sounds like the subject of a Michael Crichton book. It really does. 
really yeah, does. But people people loved adapting his stuff. He was apparently the uh, the only creative artist ever to have worked simultaneously charting at number one in U.S. television, film, and book sales. Oh wow! And that's for um, ER, Jurassic Park, and Disclosure. I forgot that he worked on ER. Yeah, in uh, in uh, respectively, yeah. That's nuts. Well, and you can see because he dabbled in so many other media, like his experience in screenwriting, uh, certainly plays a role in how Jurassic Park is paced and structured. You can, and I think it actually started as a screenplay, and then then he tried to write it as a novel focused on the on like a young boy's perspective. And all the people that he usually gives novels to to read in draft form hated it. <laughs> so <laughs> he find, he changed it to be from the perspective of mostly Dr. Grant, uh, whom we'll talk about in a little bit. And then everybody loved it because he's Michael Crichton and he always wins. Always wins. Always wins, wins. Always wins. Cases, hearts, and minds. Michael Crichton. I want to talk about more. Mm, I want to talk more about this book, Andrew. But I think first we need a little break. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey, Andrew. Craig. Hi. Hello. This week, overdue is sponsored uh, by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Oh, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it is. Well, I don't know that you need to make all of those things. You should probably have a landing page. Yeah, I mean, I think you could put a beautiful gallery on the landing page of your professional blog it, with a link to your online store. And you can do that all with Squarespace. That luckily, sounds very for you. That sounds very complicated, though. Yeah, well, that's not true because with Squarespace, creating your website is a simple, intuitive process. Um, they give you a free custom domain when you sign up. Um, they give you beautiful templates. They give you uh, great commerce tools and customer support if you can't figure anything, any of this stuff out. Um, Craig and I have OverduePodcast.com on Squarespace. Mm -hmm. And we have since the beginning. And it's been, yeah, the support people have been really great. Every time we've had a question, um, it's really easy to make changes to the site without having to muck around and code. It's just, it's a pretty good web host as web hosts go as web hosts go it's <laughs> better than your than your web rings of days gone by that web ring not the same thing oh good point you could have a squarespace site that was part of a web ring oh snap squarespace just got better squarespace hey. web rings <laughs> you heard it here first uh so if you wanted to start your free trial today you could go to squarespace.com and enter offer code overdue to get 10 percent off your first purchase yeah, and you can also start a free trial with no credit card required. And uh, yeah, Squarespace, set your website apart. All right, Andrew. All right, Craig, we're back. What do you remember about this book? And don't cite the movie. Um, Dinosaurs. Great, good work. That seriously is pretty much everything. Okay. When was the last time you saw the movie? Not long ago. It was a very, very long time okay. ago. Okay. Probably like the first time it was out. Yeah, in in there somewhere or like maybe college or something. But oh, it's been, yeah. It's been a number of years in any case. I imagine if you watched it in college, it would have been like me watching it and you walking by with a pizza going, huh. huh I'm going to go watch more Star Trek Voyager. Thanks. <laughs> 
I will try not to bog this episode down with like oh, it was different like this in the movie and it was different like that in the movie only, I will only do that as I think it supports the book because I feel like there are a couple of things in the book that surprised me that they were so similar to the movie and there are a couple of things that are specifically different or are elaborated on in a way that Spielberg simply just didn't have time to do Okay, I did. I did want to start by asking you what was different, mm. like not not everything, yeah. but like what were the primary departure points that actually affect how the story goes? Yeah, lay of the land stuff is a uh, very basic character item. Is that the kids Tim and Lexi, who are Doctor Hammond's grandchildren? Now, Doctor Hammond is the guy who set up Jurassic Park. He's owned, he owns this island off the coast of Costa Rica, and he's paid all these people to help him make this dinosaur park. Uh, Tim and Lexi is grandchildren in the film. Lexi is older. She is into computers, uh, but Tim is still the dinosaur nerd kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, Lexi is younger than Tim. Lexi's like eight. She likes playing catch. like She likes baseball. She has a Daryl Strawberry baseball glove. Um, she thinks Tim is a super dork, and he is a super dork, but he both loves dinosaurs and is into computers, and he has a bigger role to play in the in the book than in the okay. film. Um, Grant, Dr. Grant, who is our paleontologist, and Dr. Ellie Sattler, who is our paleobotanist who works with Grant, they're basically the same as in the film, uh, except that Ellie Sattler in the book is described as specifically a lot younger than Laura Dern was in the film. Okay. And there's, I'll get this out of the way now, like there's some pretty uncomfortable male gaze stuff about Dr. Sattler in this book. Nice. Of course there is. You gotta have that hot, hot lady scientist in there. Yeah. Most. Sex it up a little bit. Most people. Like dinosaurs aren't sexy enough by themselves. Am I right? Most people are like, remark to themselves in their mind or in that like third person over the shoulder way about Dr. Sattler wearing like cut off jeans and her <laughs> legs. Even Tim when he first even like twelve year old Tim when he first sees her, like there's a beat about him looking at her legs. So sexy jorts, ma'am. <sighs> and <laughs> and also just a, a thing that happens throughout the book is almost every like older male character is referred to by their last name okay like grant hammond woo henry woo uh muldoon who's the big game hunter uh often dr sattler is just referred to as ellie and it's just that like come on it's the hillary thing and i think well and as i'm yes maybe and as i'm speaking now I, i think in i'm referring to her as dr sattler i think in the book she may actually be a graduate student so there, there's, it's not quite the same as the film, but it still feels weird. Okay, sure. Um, and I just want to get that out of the way. Also, Hammond is not as nice as he is in the in the movie. <laughs> like he's kind of this money grubbing old man who just wants to make dinosaurs to make a bunch of money. Right, and in the movie, he was like a nice dinosaur grandpa. He was just a wayward dino grandpa. Yeah. And I mean, he didn't he didn't stop to think if he should, but he wasn't like nasty about it. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's a little more overtly 
nasty about it in this one, and he gets his comeuppance because of it. Uh, okay. And then the other, you, the other main difference is that you get more stuff about what's wrong with the park and the fear of dinosaurs getting off the island um, than in the movie. That's actually yeah, a I huge think the, I think deal the movie, in the book. I think the movie relied a little bit more on just the visuals of dinosaurs like breaking loose and chasing people around. Yes. And those fears could be more like unspoken or saved for the next movie in the franchise. <laughs> yeah, in this, they they talk about the control measures of how they're going to keep the dinosaurs there. Um, but the book opens with a couple of chapters with characters that you don't really ever meet ever again. Um, where like an American girl on a beach in Costa Rica gets attacked by some b- tiny dinosaurs, some uh, compies. A baby gets eaten by dinosaurs in like the first 30 pages, mm-hmm. like in a village somewhere. Babies uh, are like veal to dinosaurs, though. It's a delicacy. I guess. Yeah. I mean, dinosaurs don't know what we are. That's I mean, I another... guess veal could also be veal for dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same is the same concept. It is. The, yes. It's baby meat. Um, and it's like a soft shell crab. <sighs> Delicious. And they are much, much more concerned with what could happen if dinosaurs escape the island. The movie kind of just like waves its hands at that. It's like, don't worry. They're never going to leave. They're fine. They're here. Yeah. No, it's cool. We figured that part out. Yes. And to, to be perfectly honest, Jurassic Park did not figure this stuff out. So the whole reason these people are on the island in the first place, we'll get to that. Hammond has poured a bunch of money into genetic research and it's laid out pretty early that there's really no reason to bring dinosaurs back. Like that's okay. a, like and I, I watched an interview where Crichton said as much. He's like, there wouldn't be a, a real reason for this technology to exist except to make money. Right. As entertainment. I mean, I, I, I've got to think that scientific there's some scientific research to be done in there. But sure. No, it's only for money. Yes, of course. Uh he like an interviewer actually asked Crichton, "Should we be worried about this happening? Like, is this a thing that's going to happen?" He goes, "I wouldn't worry about it." <laughs> okay, <laughs> Michael Crichton. Well, because he wrote that book, and now everybody's going to be terrified <laughs> to bring dinosaurs. He's back. an expert on it. Yeah, even if we can do it. Yes. So Hammond uh, runs InGen, which is his like genetic research firm. He's bought this island. He hired Grant initially. He hired. Uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm initially and a couple other people to consult on this like museum resort attraction that he was going to build about dinosaurs. Now, of course, he didn't tell anybody that he actually was making real dinosaurs. Okay. Um, And a series. Yeah, nobody's nobody's going to fund that. No, uh, but a series of like worker deaths and some other security concerns. A bunch of funders are going to pull out like the park is behind schedule. Uh, they're, they're worried about safety stuff. So Hammond needs to prove to one of his lawyers that everything is on the up and up. So he rounds up Dr. Grant, rounds up Ellie Sattler, uh, gets Ian Malcolm on board, and he takes them down to Costa Rica. Again, he still hasn't told them that the park that they helped him make has dinosaurs in it. Uh-huh. 
but he brings them down there as consultants to like give a like a big thumbs up like this looks good come on this sounds <laughs> this is a definitely a thing mm-hmm. uh and when they get there he's also invited his two grandchildren tim and lexi to come so that they can kind of bring this youth youthful dino enthusiasm to bear on all the all the crusty adults who are only concerned about safety and people not dying to dinosaurs uh, safety is so boring (laughs) you got it only you can only see through the eyes of a child the real fun of gigantic (laughs) dinosaurs that probably would eat you and your family Uh if they could Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh and one of the things that we should address before we get any further in the story is whether or not the ian malcolm of this book is as sexy as jeff goldblum what okay? What what's the evidence that we have in each corner? Well, have you seen the Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> have you seen? Yes, him? I've seen Jeff Goldblum. He's a pretty sexy guy. He's his he's distinctive looking in the face. I would say. <laughs> I wouldn't. He's not a sort the sort of like all American no. looking of your say like your George Clooney's or your John Hams. No, but he is. Yes, handsome in a in a rugged, smart, witty sort of way. Well, I, let's say this: Jeff Goldblum in the '90s and maybe the '80s was. He, now he's aged better than I, he's aged into some weird apartment wizard. Like he's in these commercials <laughs> for Apartments dot com. <laughs> I don't know. It's like he was birthed from the internet. Like I don't know what he is now. But he's like a, he's he has a rakish, imposing figure in the film Jurassic Park. Okay, sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, let me know what this description reminds you of. Okay. Shortly before midnight, he stepped on the plane at the Dallas airport. A tall, thin, balding man of thirty-five, dressed entirely okay. in black: black shirt, black trousers, black socks, black sneakers. Who does that remind you of? <laughs> like Steve Jobs. That's what I thought. <laughs> Like he he is now, Steve like, Jobs was a looker in the day. I can't. Yeah. Like, if you go back to the eighties and you see him like hugging the Macintosh on the cover of a magazine, <laughs> like pretty attractive looking guy. But in his later years, yeah, definitely very dad chic. Yeah. In his hair and and clothing choices. Yeah, Malcolm isn't really presented in this book as like a sex symbol. There's no like scene where he's like sexily drop, dripping water on Ellie's hand and trying to elaborate on chaos theory or something. Sure. Um, but I know that's a burning question for some folks, so I just wanted to get it. I have seen Jeff Goldblum on stage in person. Like okay. I was in the eighth row when I saw him on Broadway. He's like 12 feet tall. <laughs> he is 12 feet tall and has the grace of a gazelle. And how turned on were you? Uh, it, did, was there a sign that said, like, the first eight rows will get wet on this ride? I had to make it after I was watched the show. I made mm-hmm. the sign and okay. put it up. There really should be a sign, you thought to yourself. Uh, yeah. I, people need to know. Okay. <laughs> the people need to know. All right. So sexiness of Dr. Ian Malcolm aside, are the characters consistent or does it matter or what? What's the deal? What do you mean consistent? Consistent across like the book and the movie. Are they mm-hmm. are they basically the same they're, character? They're pretty consistent except I th- they have more depth to them, right? Like there's more time to develop. Grant is an interesting character because he immediately recognizes 
that this renders his entire profession uh, moot. Like, the first okay. time he sees a dinosaur, he's like, well, we're finished. Yeah, who's going to want to dig up old dinosaur bones when you got new dinosaur bones everywhere? <laughs> exactly. And he's fascinated <laughs> by it. He loves it, but he he is a little like, huh. The, the, the minor I thing. Know. I don't know if I 100% buy that. We still dig up old human bones and stuff. Like I think there would still be. True. There, there would still be the desire for knowledge of these things in their native habitats. Yes, certainly. That we could probably only get from old bones, but sure. And the, we'll accept and, that as true. And Jurassic Park is also I, I don't know. I was not like a functioning adult before before Jurassic Park. I was a little boy who loved dinosaurs. So I don't really remember the time when people didn't have a sense that dinosaurs were related to birds. But mm-hmm. that's like a huge part of this book also. This book is riding that was just a new thing. It, it was riding the end wave of that. I was doing some research today. Like that, that was an initial conclusion that people drew in the 19th century, and then they were like, "Nope, it's probably crocodiles. Don't worry about it." And, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Uh, Doctor J. H. Ostrom in '69 uh, identified a Deinonychus sample that made him think that they were probably birds, and then Jack Horner, who is a pretty famous paleontologist who. They've said uh, Crichton based Grant on um, is a big you know proponent of that theory. He's actually see, he's the one who um, sat in the corner eating a Christmas pie. Yes. All mm-hmm. right. Cool. And in recent years is working to create some sort of dinosaur chicken. Just on the on the topic of genetic mod- genetic modification, he thinks that the easiest way to make a dinosaur today would not be to just replicate one from like. Uh, blood in dino dna dino dna mm-hmm. uh, but to actually like <laughs> genetically modify a chicken so that when it passes on its genes it creates a dinosaur Ooh, think about that that's crazy uh so the other thing not about the characters but you just mentioned the dino dna like dino that's a DNA. that's a big part of the film dinosaurs in the book they uh, it's not as entertaining as that they kind of oh, just they <laughs> Wait, what about, are there any Unix systems? Is Wayne Knight featured at all? Wayne Knight is featured. Um, Okay. So real I know I'm asking you a lot of questions. I know. And (laughs) I said I didn't want to just do like what's different from the movie, but it's actually. I'm sorry. I'm I'm distracting you. No, but it was actually my experience of reading the book. And we haven't had a, I can't remember the last book that we did that was like, yo, you read the movie and then we talked about the book. Lord of the Rings, maybe. Home Alone. Home Alone. Okay. Good point. Good point. Good point. (laughs) I forgot about that. Uh, but the, it did ex- like it did shape my experience of reading the book. Like I was filling in visual information from the films that Crichton either didn't care about or like did half of, and my brain was just like, "That's what that person looks like. That's what sure. that does." Yeah. Um, but then I was anytime a plot point happened that was either very similar or very different, like my my brain instantly registered it. Uh, the DNA stuff that they talk about is different in that it's far more nerdy and far more dense you're not they, watching like a kid's infotainment video about it no but there is a fascinating discussion between hammond and the main doctor dr henry Wu, who's in charge of actually Woo. creating these dinosaurs from their dna and if you don't know the film or haven't read the book what they did was they found all these fossilized pieces of amber that have mosquitoes in them. They draw the blood out of the mosquitoes 
and then they use that to replicate the dino DNA. There's a method that they talk about where you just grind up dino bones and try to get the DNA from that, but it's uh-huh. really unreliable. That <laughs> feels like fake science, like old timey science where <laughs> you're just like, well, yeah, I guess you could just make bone like bone powder and get it out that way. That probably will work. Uh, Wu actually raises some interesting points later in the book where he he points out that what he's doing is fabrication like he doesn't actually know if he's getting the dinosaurs right he even points out that they don't even know what the dinosaur is when they pull it out of the mosquito like it isn't until the embryo starts to form that they've identified what type of dinosaur they're even making which is kind of crazy yeah and one of the main one of the many flaws of this park yeah uh but he's he goes on this rant with hammond where he's like hey I could make, like, better dinosaurs. Like, we've already started this path where I'm, like, putting frog DNA in to make sure that they're complete. I'm already trying to make sure that they don't die immediately upon, like, breathing 21st or 20th century air. Mm -hmm. Like, I could just make a dinosaur. I could try and breed them for not killing people. Or I could breed them for really killing people yeah or not sleeping as much or what like whatever details you might want i could start doing that and yeah that's so that's the plot of the movie jurassic world yeah yeah basically okay well they have that island where all the other dinosaurs are that they didn't want in the park that's what jurassic world is Mm -hmm. i think uh and so Hammond's like, no, 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 we need it to be authentic. And we was like, I don't think you understand what that means. Because <laughs> none of these dinosaurs are real. Yeah. And, and it raises an int- That's to me is where like the genetic modification stuff really takes the forefront. Because it's like once you start down this slope, where, do you, where are you ever able to draw a line mm-hmm. at all? Because um, we're and we're facing that now with like genetically modified food and I was actually reading. Have you heard about CRISPR, Andrew? That's the. Um, if it's not the drawer that you put like vegetables into, then no, I don't know. Cool. It's a gene editing technique <laughs> that where you like inject genes with a virus that rewrites the DNA. Okay. And this was invented like three years ago. This is in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a year or two, they're going to start a human trial where they attempt to cure blindness with it. Ooh. And I don't, after that, like, we run into some Gattaca, like, designer babies situations, and people have some, people have some misgivings about it, mm-hmm. including me, I think. Huh. Okay. I don't, that's, that, that seems like what this book is actually up to. The dinosaur thing is like a vehicle for that. Um, but so let's talk about the, the problems with Jurassic Park, because spoiler alert, the park isn't ready. And it's never going to be ready. Right. Okay, so what's not ready about it? So here's their system for tracking dinosaurs. They have 238 animals in the park, Andrew, 15 okay. species. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had an an island mm-hmm. with all sorts of dinosaurs in a bunch of different like pens and enclosures, how would you keep track of them? I guess you put like tags on them or something. Mm-hmm. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner, uh-huh. except the people at Jurassic Park use something else. They okay, what do they do? Motion sensors and like Google recognition software. 
Okay. So they have motion sensors throughout the park where they can, through 92% of the park, where they can track movement. And then, I bet that 8% of the park never factors in at any point oh, in this entire book. Oh, no. The T-Rex totally doesn't chase people down a river that's in the un, like <laughs> the unseen part of the park. Uh, and then the computer, because they've built like a 2001 uh, Space Odyssey computer. It doesn't talk to them or anything, but one of the overhead problems that Hammond tried to alleviate was like having too much staff. So everything is almost everything is automated. And the computer can identify dinosaurs by sight, I guess. That's a thing. Sure. So every I mean, while you're making stuff up, like why stop it? <laughs> why stop it? Why stop it reconstituted dinosaurs? Just make up some motion sensing technology yeah. too. So every fifteen minutes the computer looks around the island and tries to find the correct two hundred and thirty eight dinosaurs use that where there is motion. And they okay. they talk about how well sometimes some of the some of the hadrosaurs disappear into the lagoon and like we have to wait until we can find them again or some of the other ones hang out in the trees and the computer can't find them but it all it always works out like it's always fine wait but when the dinosaurs start breeding because they have frog dna and switch genders which is super cool okay that's in the movie you should remember that sure because they use frog DNA to complete the code. Do you not remember that from the DNA it's video? Been, it's been a long time, okay. like I said. Um, in a single-sex environment, there are frogs that will apparently just spontaneously switch gender. Cool. Or, like, switch their genitals to procreate or something. And the dinosaurs are doing that. Okay. But the computer didn't think to look for more than 238 dinosaurs. What is... This whole system seems... Really, really poorly thought out. The whole time, Dr. Malcolm is a chaos theorist, and his uh, whole thing is that systems this complex cannot be controlled with other simple systems. And he's just, the whole book is just like, this is screwed. You're all idiots. This is all going to come crashing down. We've only been on this planet for a hundred, like had this type of science for a hundred years. There's no way that this will stand the test of time. Yeah, no, this is, this is why you have like, this is why you don't just have a dinosaur park that you don't tell anybody about. This is why you got to run this stuff by somebody before you just go and do it. So there's a moment where John Arnold, the, the software guy, he's like showing off the security system. They're like, well, could you just like take a look for more than 238 dinosaurs? And he tells the computer to do so and they find 50 extra. And then they find 150 extra. Uh-huh. And then there's like 200 extra dinos and all the ones that there are extras of had frog DNA in them. Uh-huh. And and Malcolm's just like, you idiots. You We're screwed. Stupid moron <laughs> dino cloning idiots. And one of the other controls that they have on the dinosaurs that they're like, this will be totally this will be totally fine. We'll make them dependent on lysine, which is a an amino acid that helps break down proteins or whatever. Or vice mm-hmm. versa. I don't know sure. science. And No, that sounds right. They they put the lysine in their food to keep them dependent on being fed by the park. Um, but when, towards the end of the book, when you learn that some dinosaurs have gotten off the island, mm-hmm. uh-oh, they've been going around like eating soy and other chickens that eat all those beans to make sure they get enough lysine. Because, yo, dinosaurs are smart. 
and they're figured Apparently. it out. <sighs> okay. So this is good. no, this is definitely how this would play out in real life, though. Like people would definitely, definitely underfund this park and stuff would just go all kinds of awry. Yeah. And part of it too is it's it's half underfunding. It's uh, it's more than half. It's underfunding. It's uh like what's the word I'm looking for for when you're too prideful and you don't see your what's the hubris? word? Yes, thank you. Hubris. Thank you. I don't know why I lost that word for a second. No, um, it was you, you were hubristic. You yep. thought you knew all the words going it, in and you didn't know them. It was Hammond's hubris about what the park could be and should be. Um it's also they talk a lot about bringing these animals from millions of years ago into a system that is not designed for them at all and like mm-hmm. what you're not at that point you're not even getting their accurate behavior because they're trying to survive under conditions that are so different and you can't at that point predictability goes out the window okay uh and this is Malcolm's big rant about you know sci- he calls science an inherited like wealth and he goes on this rant about uh you not needing to put in the work to leverage that research and knowledge the metaphor he uses is like uh if you spent all your life studying to be some sort of like black belt karate master like you would be able to kill someone with your bare hands okay that's just a given because mm-hmm. karate but yeah that's how karate yeah that's what every karate <laughs> class teaches you to do but he says if you put in all that time you would have matured enough over the time it took and you would not want to kill people like you okay. would you would not be that reckless and he points out that uh or at least he his critique of modern science is that we don't have to put in the work we can just you can just build on the work of of people who came before you. Yeah, def- everyone should have to start from zero in every scientific practice. Definitely. Oh, definitely, definitely. And it's not you know it's not a critique that applies in every scenario, but in this well, pr- and it's not like karate. Like people did all that work for karate too. You have to know all the like the killing blows. You don't just know them. There's a lot of karate research that goes on. Before you find the five point exploding heart technique or whatever. Uh huh. The <laughs> the this, other this is flawed. This is a flawed. It is a flawed argument. I think, but yeah. in in the context of I see this what he's book, saying. yeah. And what what is also there's like a prologue that Crichton wrote that treats this as if it was a thing that really happened, and he draws a line between this and Francis and Crick and the discovery of DNA in the first place. Okay. Which was still happening at that point. Biochem was still part of the same like scientific uh, community that was all publicly funded or funded in the educational sphere. And I think one of the things that Crichton is really after here is private uh, like for-profit scientific advancement is gonna is gonna cause problems Mm -hmm. because there's no you're not like i said earlier while there might actually be you know tangible benefits to the science that could bring dinosaurs back from the grave uh in the context of this story that is not the case okay gotcha it's just to please children Mm -hmm. um 
I didn't talk about Wayne Knight, Andrew. I'm sorry. Do you want me to talk about Wayne Knight real quick? I mean, if it's important, but you don't have to. That goes into the... This is... uh, The character is Rob Nedry. He designed their computer system. And of course, Andrew, he didn't know what he was designing it for. They said, build a computer system that will allow us to do X, Y, and Z. But we're not going to tell you any of the data that we're holding or why. Okay. And he rightfully complains that that's a terrible... (laughs) terrible yeah, no, super not this is not how you're supposed to do that because then there's all sorts of bugs when he gets there and he has been recruited by a competitor of hammond's to steal embryos um so that they can have their own dinosaur parks and their own dinosaur merchandise and video games mm-hmm. and he is so dis like so disillusioned by working with hammond that he agrees to do it and he's one of the reasons that during a tropical storm that you would have thought Jurassic Park could handle, uh, he also shuts down all the security systems so that he can steal a bunch of dinosaur embryos and get off the island. But he doesn't because the dinosaur kills him. Good, good. He gets it. At least the dinosaurs are killing all the bad people, right? Yeah. At least uh, dinosaurs are smart enough to intuit who is bad. (laughs) It's true. And who is good. It's true. Uh, I will say, as I feel like we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff and we're going to run out of time at some point, um, I do want to talk... pretty soon. Yeah, Yeah, I know. What is the... If you can recall, Andrew, what's the, like, big set-piece moment of Jurassic Park that you remember? I guess it's, like, the T-Rex with the kids trapped in the car. Yeah, heck yeah. And that scene is awesome in the book. Okay. It's more similar than you would think in... That, like, it's still the two electric Jeeps. So the way that the park is set up, they go on this, like, electric Jeep safari that goes past all the pens. (laughs) And they have to go back to the visitor center. um, And they're in these Jeeps. The kids are in the Jeep with a PR guy. And uh, Malcolm and Grant are in the other Jeep, I think, with the lawyer. And they end up by the T-Rex paddock. And, oh, wait, all the power goes out. So they're stuck there. And then the T-Rex tears the fence down and comes through and attacks them. Um, Meanwhile, they've also seen through night vision goggles that there are some raptors that were on a boat that was like going by the beach. Just like driving a boat and one (laughs) of them has like a little skipper hat on. Yes, precisely. Uh Uh, And that sets in a ticking clock for the rest of the book that Grant needs to let people know that there are raptors. raptors can drive boats. That they can drive boats and that they're Mm -hmm. driving the boat to the mainland. Um and that's not in the movie at all. Like, they're not worried, about, as we said before. Um, but that's a big driver of Grant's. But this whole T-Rex sequence, it's similar in that, like, it's tearing at the car like it's a living thing trying to get at the meat inside. Like, it's like a monkey trying to crack open a clam or something. Mm-hmm. Do monkeys eat clams? I don't know. Like, whatever. I'm just going to let you go do whatever. That's cool. <laughs> with this metaphor that you're trying to do. Uh, a couple of the people who get injured get like hurt in different orders. Um, Malcolm still gets like tossed aside like a rag doll, and his legs get broken. Uh, at one point in the film, Spielberg like does some weird cinematic magic to make a cl- to make like a whole portion of the of the ground disappear so that a jeep can fall over a cliff. In the book, Crichton just has the T-Rex throw a Jeep into a tree. (laughs) (laughs) So you still get this, like, incredibly tense sequence where Tim is trapped inside of a Jeep that is falling down a tree. Like a giant 
jungle, you know, deciduous jungle tree. Uh, and it's some of those set piece action moments. There's another one later where they actually go through the pteranodon aviary that isn't in the film. That's also really tense, and they're like being dive bombed by these pteranodons, which is pretty pretty nuts. Uh, that Crichton, you can see the the thriller writer poking through beyond the like guy who's going to let Malcolm rant about chaos theory for five pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that sequence is is pretty great. The T Rex stuff, all the T Rex stuff is great. Um, the Raptors you are just, just love T Rex. I do love T Rex stuff. Uh, the Raptors are just as smart in the book as they are in the film. Uh, the later films have the T-Rexes like almost having language, which is weird, and that's not in this book at all. Uh, and it should be noted for like dino fans out there, well, all you dino fans out there, you'll know that the raptors in this book are likely uh, actually Deinonychus or Deinonychi. Well, actually. Which is probably because Crichton was working from a book in 1988 called predatory dinosaurs of the world uh that had a mislabeled illustration of what a velociraptor was so they're not six feet tall they're like three feet tall come on Mm -hmm. cool yeah right um but it's a good book it's i i warmed up to Crichton's prose it felt pretty stilted at first and pretty simple and i I think it was mostly just because i hadn't read a book that felt this plot driven in a while um it wasn't you, you hadn't read like a page turner in a bit yeah i hadn't read read a, like an overt page turner in a while um and so was there i mean was there anything that really surprised you about the book having you know being so familiar with the movie anything that caught you unawares or that you particularly liked or hated uh not nothing that i hated i'll say save the the discomfort around the treatment of of Ellie Sattler. Um, right. Dr. Hammond says oh balls a couple of times. Cool. As a like people are disagreeing with him about how dangerous the raptors are and he goes, "Oh balls, I you told me the raptors are dangerous, I don't care." <laughs> uh and Malcolm as this the characterization of Malcolm is is really unique and separate from the film. He's kind of this like raving man standing on a cliff as he's dying like he gets injured and then spends the rest of the book just slowly dying and and on morphine like raving about why chaos theory proved that this whole thing was falling apart uh and that is not the characterization you get in the film at all sure um but it also it explains i think that is is what Crichton's up to the most he talks about mankind's relatively a short span of human history of of like the world uh and Hammond at one point is like you're afraid I'm going to destroy the world and there's like a three-page diatribe where Malcolm goes well I'm not the world will be fine we might all die we might not make it the world will recover even if we like destroyed it in nuclear holocaust it might take a couple billion years well and then and humans may or may not fare super great but- yeah yeah, I mean, I guess if when people worry about destroying the world, really, let's be real, we're just worried about humans, right? Like, yeah. we're just trying to look out for number one. We're trying to make sure we're not that, worried about the world. No, we're trying to make sure that I can still go to the grocery store and get some Chippewas. Like, we're trying, we're trying to yeah, keep exactly. creature comforts. I don't want Netflix to go away, and I don't. Like, I just, I don't want those creatures, those comfortable creatures, to be dinosaurs. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want them to eat me. Also, this book is wicked gory. Like people get that people get their intestines ripped out all the time. And like I said, in the first thirty pages, a baby's gets gets its face eaten off. Like Crichton does not pull punches. Mm-hmm. He is often doling out punches from dinosaurs to people. <laughs> Andrew, what's your favorite dinosaur? My favorite dinosaur? Gotta be Brontosaurus. That's... Uh, I love their long necks. They're, they're sort of real again. They, yeah. They brought that name back. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to... I didn't... Gotta be Brontosaurus. What's I, your favorite? Now I made you too sad. You did make me sad. I really like uh, Pachycephalosaurus, who's not in this book. He's got Hackacephalosaurus. Yeah, he's he's a, like a duckbill dinosaur. Not a duckbill dinosaur, but he resembles the hadrosaurs in this book. He walks on mm-hmm. his hind legs, pretty short uh, front legs, and he has like a like a football helmet head that he can like run into people. It's like a really solid bone head. Uh, <laughs> okay. So he doesn't have horns, but he just like headbutts people. Right. Um, when I was I just mentioned those short front legs. There there are a couple moments where the T Rex behaves weirdly in this book, particularly in that it uses you. you people like to play jokes on the T Rex about its front legs. They and do. It's they're pretty stumpy and pretty silly looking. Yeah, he uses them to decent effect in this book. How so? Like he rips down part of the fence with his with his hand, and then later when they see him eating, like he's like sitting up against. He looks like he's like some sort of like tired construction worker, just like <laughs> leaning back against a tree, and he's like licking his hands as if he had like clawed something open, like it almost like he just ate a pastrami sandwich and he has just like mustard all over his hands and he's Got just like licking it off. <laughs> uh, not not the kind of like oh I can't reach the piano keys jokes about dinosaurs and music like mm-hmm. it's not. T-Rex aren't going to play no piano. They're going to eat you. They're going to eat your head. Then you're not going to make no piano jokes. Uh, you should read this book. It's pretty cool if you haven't already. That's my judgment. Okay. I didn't know I needed to do that, but apparently I felt the need to in you the moment. You summed it up. You got it. <laughs> just summed it up. Andrew, if people wanted to tell us about their favorite dinosaur, what should they do? Um, they could hit us on Twitter at twitter.com slash overduepod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash overduepod. You could also talk to us about dinosaurs in our inbox. Uh, just email overduepod at gmail.com. Um, if you want to find out, well, Craig, first tell me who got in touch with us over the social medias yeah, this week. Yeah, people were excited to talk about horses as well as elements of our back catalog. That includes people love horses. And people love horses. Uh, Ray, Melissa, Lynn, Tanisha, Corey, Jennifer, Ellen, Sophie, Grant, Karen, Catherine, Margaret, Melissa, Eric, Lucas, Karen, Marianne, Melanie, Josh, Emmett. And we got emails from Paul, Jeff, uh, Zealus, I think, Tyler, Amanda, Catherine. Uh, Paul was asking us, Andrew, real quick about a book, uh, not a book, a game you played with your coworkers, a card game. A card game? Euchre? Euchre. What about How it? is that spelled? Uh, e u c h r e. Okay, it's like it's kind of it's kind of like a a trick taking game, right? Yeah. Okay. He just wanted to know. He's looking for fun games to play. I to that is that out. is it. Um, I can't promise. <laughs> it's it's a difficult game to teach like four people who have never played it before. It okay. works better when you have three people who are skilled, or even like four people who can play it, and then the fifth person just watches until they're comfortable with it. That's how I learned. Okay, so go watch some euchre on the internet, and then you'll pick it up. Yeah, uh, Andrew, I'm sure that exists. Yeah, folks can also go to our Squarespace website, right? 
Yes. It's you can a- go to overduepodcast.com <laughs> and find out even more about the show. That's where we have links to iTunes, RSS, Stitcher, Google Play. Um, those are all services you can use to subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe in iTunes, rate and review us if you haven't already. I think we're getting close to 300 and Craig loves round numbers, even though they're fleeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so go tell us what you think. Um, cause that makes us feel better and it helps us rise in the rankings. I don't really understand how Apple's algorithm works, but I think that's part of it. Yes. Um, what else is on that website? Craig? You can find links to old episodes. You can find links to our, uh, RSS feed. If you don't use iTunes or the Google play store where we are, you can also find us in Stitcher or on Spreaker, which hosts all of our podcasts, uh, as well as our network headgum. um, which is a great podcast network that we are a part of. And I don't, anything else? You can find Amazon links to the books that we have read. That's the big thing. You can do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Andrew, what are you reading for next week? All right, so here's the deal. I'm trying to read 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. It was Mm -hmm. another patron request. I'm really, really enjoying it so far. But I am, it's like 50 50 probably that I'm actually going to finish it. So there's a chance that like Wednesday or Thursday, I might look at how far I've gotten and decide I need to pick something else out. Great. So if, I, if, if that happens, then I'll just bump uh, Murakami back a couple weeks and we'll, and we'll go from there. But yes, that is, that is what I am trying to do right now. Great. So, okay. and the odds that anyone who's listening to this would finish the Murakami in a week anyway to like be up for the discussion yeah is pretty yeah, low I, don't, I really don't have a sense of how many people do that but if you do i'd love to hear from you um i think that's it so all right everybody we will see you next monday and until then try to be happy